I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome to today's podcast, Michael Tomaski. He, of course, is editor of Democracy, a journal of ideas and a columnist for The Daily Beast. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Michael, in your latest issue of Democracy, a journal of ideas, you focus your symposium on Trump versus democracy, and it's a special issue on the crisis of democratic order and norms under this presidency. What most struck you in the total volume of these contributions? (laughs) What most struck me uh, is that we assigned 35 pieces on different aspects of Trump's rule-breaking, norm-breaking, democracy-threatening, however you want to call it. It's all of those things and more probably. We assigned 35 pieces on, you know, things like interfering in investigations and inviting Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden, inviting foreign interference in our inter, uh, in our elections, that is, abusing the pardon power, uh, abusing the emoluments clause, subverting the Justice Department, on and on and on, uh, 35 things. And I, I felt like we could have assigned twice that number. That's what struck me. That's really extraordinary. And of course, for those listening, visit democracyjournal.org and see these contributions by Secretary Clinton, um, by Richard Cordray, uh, E.J. Dionne. This collection um, really related to the corruption of America, Um, not just the Congress, not just science, not just the abdication of democracy around the world. Um, As we set up for this grand stage of election day, week and month, 2020, do you think that the contributions you selected and edited are being framed in a, in a resonant way for the American public by the Biden campaign, by the Lincoln project, by others who are doing that sheer work in the arena? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Democracy journal isn't in the arena in that way. It's, um, you know, this, 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 issue doesn't mention anything about the election really at all. It just lays out what we believe Trump has done uh, that subverts the constitution in the electoral arena. You know, I think the Lincoln project is, is doing a great job of pressing these arguments. And I, and I think that uh, I think the Biden campaign does, does a a pretty effective job at it. Uh, I, I mean, you know, look, Trump is, he's got his following. There's no question about that. And they're, passionate and they're impervious to these kinds of arguments. But he's a very unpopular president. And, you know, it's like 42 to 52 or whatever it is. I'm surprised it's 42, but it is. Or 43 to 53. But that 53 is really, really strongly against. And, you know, you see polls. I'm sure you've seen them too. And uh, and your listeners, Um, uh, you know, 50% would never consider voting for him or 48%. So uh, the opposition is is pretty intense and pretty hardwired. And I, I think they have a very firm understanding that he, one of his worst sins is the way he violates these democratic norms. One of the things that was notably absent during the Democratic National Convention and in the messaging around Donald Trump was the fact that he was impeached. Uh, And he was impeached for some of the crimes against democracy that you describe in the Journal of Ideas special edition of democracy. Um, Do you think on 
the the specific grounds of his violations of the Constitution that the Biden campaign is pronounced enough, um, his contempt of our democracy um, that is spelled out as opposed to the kind of generic campaign to restore normalcy and and fundamentally decency is he spe- does he need to be more specific at all in these next couple of weeks or it doesn't matter um you know i don't i guess it i would say that it probably doesn't matter that much um your point about the convention is an interesting one uh, and the lack of impeachment but i i gather they've made the decision and I can't say that I can necessarily disagree that talking about impeachment is going to move anything. You know, I mean, minds were made up about that. You know, and um, <clears throat> and that's kind of a process thing. You know, there's we we often we we pundit types. <laughs> God help me for calling myself that. But we often divide discussion of politics into two different categories, broad categories there's process stuff and then there's substance stuff. And we're very concerned about process stuff and um, uh, voters are more concerned about substance stuff. So I don't think reminding people of impeachment actually probably would make that much difference. You know, Biden can better spend his time just talking about his plans for the economy. Let me ask you about the plans for the economy. Um, he, he has attempted in, in his coalition building to somewhat resurrect the 2008 Obama coalition, which was a strong electoral college victory in addition to a popular vote victory. This Doesn't this ultimately just come down sh- to demographics in terms of how many suburban households there are that he can turn? It does. And... Uh his coalition is going to be a little different from the Obama coalition. He's probably going to get somewhat more white working class votes than Obama did. Um, Now Obama didn't do too badly with white working class votes in the North, particularly in the great lakes region, Um, like in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan. uh, He got, uh, especially in 2008, he got a pretty good share, not a majority, of course, but a pretty good share of the white working class vote. He got hammered in the South, as Biden will, too. But uh, I'm sure you've seen polls, you know, where, you know, Biden or Hillary Clinton in particular was, you know, Trump beat her by 27 percent among white working class voters or whatever it is. And, and Biden has that whittled down to single digits. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's going to be a slightly different coalition from Obama, but he still needs a very heavy uh, African-American and, and Latino turnout and needs to win those votes, uh, you know, very large and, uh, and women, you know, that's the other big difference. I mean, he's going to have a big, bigger gender gap uh, than Obama did than Hillary Clinton did. It looks like. Do you think Michael, that the, the cake is baked to such a degree that what transpires in these next days is not going to matter, uh, of course, unless uh, a candidate's health is in jeopardy, in which case, you know, that might be the one variable that changes things. This election um, has moved a little bit 
it was closer back in the spring, but it was still, you know, Biden leading most of the polls, leading every national head-to-head poll, even back then. And he was ahead in most of the swing states, but by less than now. It's opened up a bit since the debate when, you know, a lot of swing voters didn't like Trump's performance. And it seems to have opened up a little bit more even since Trump's diagnosis, which, you know, you might, uh, under normal circumstances, that might get the the person who got a positive diagnosis a, a, a sympathy vote. But under these circumstances, with his history of downplaying the virus and saying it's a miracle and not wearing a mask and saying it's going to go away like a miracle, excuse me, and not wearing a mask and all the rest of it. Uh, I think that uh, while people on the one hand, you know, wish him to get better, on the other hand, uh, they're not going to change their vote out of any sense of sympathy for him. And I think it lost him a few votes. So what can happen in these last three weeks, three weeks and change? You know, it would have to be a really dramatic event. I, I think it's 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 pretty well set in stone, but that's not to say that it can't. And then there's also the question of whether the polls are wrong, and they were wrong in 2016 by just enough that it made a difference. How many times in a century in a presidential race do you get a Dewey beats Truman? I mean, how many times do you get that um, result that is in opposition to everything you would have believed? And for it to happen consecutively in the next presidential cycle would be rather stunning. And, and of course, you know, a, a, a huge knock against the polls. Yeah, it sure would. And uh, well, let's see, I've been covering these things since 1992, I guess. And I've been watching them, you know, with my dad since 1972. And, uh, how often have the polls been wrong? I guess 2016 is kind of the only time. Uh, maybe in 2000. I, I, no, 2000. It, they were very close. They were they were within the margin of error. Um, so yeah. Uh, so for it to happen twice would really tell us something about polling. And maybe polling has changed in the age when whatever percentage of the population doesn't have landlines anymore. And uh, a lot of people don't pick up calls, uh, unfamiliar numbers and things like that. So it's, it's much harder for pollsters. Um, the polling but- does align with the very strong results for the Democrats in 2018. So that seems to yeah. be the evidentiary basis for it. Yeah, that's true. And pollsters know how to wait for all this and, and, and adjust for all this stuff. So, uh, you know, again, uh, I think Biden is a little farther ahead of Trump at this point than Clinton was a little bit. Um, so, and then, you know, but Clinton suffered from that Comey incident 11 days before the election. If something like that happens, then, you know, maybe it throws things open, but I, I tend to think that circumstances are pretty different now. You know, Trump wasn't the incumbent and there were enough people probably willing just to take a flyer and say, what the heck. Um, but, not that many people are saying what the heck about him now. And the second question is about the restoration of our democracy through the transition. And that has been in doubt. And that is Donald Trump's willingness to abdicate the throne, to succeed in lawful order in what may be a successor who is Joe Biden. Um, When you read those essays and think about 
the importance of restoring our democracy and the fact that that process begins with making sure that the ballots are counted lawfully and honestly, and that we are patient as a country as the returns come in in this pandemic vote, which may be a week after election day or two weeks after election day, that is going to be a crucial moment in testing, is it not, whether those democratic values can rebound. Uh, it's terrifying. And, uh, you know, it's uh, because there's just the number of scenarios is uh, you know, just too numerous to, to, for, for, to wrap our minds around um, from votes being impounded before the election in a friendly, in a Trump friendly state like Florida, you know, something like that's not impossible. Uh, violence on election day itself, violence after election day, he's all but given the green light to, he has given the green light to, uh, you know, private armies, Trump armies to go around and, and intimidate people and, and whatnot. Uh, challenging the slates of electors is something that I'm kind of focused on as it happens, as, as we speak, writing about it uh, for a near future Daily Beast column. Um, but that's something that could really gum things up constitutionally for a long time. There are loads of scenarios. And, um, you know, I think uh, unless Biden really, really clobbers him and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin are seven or eight points and Florida's five or six points and even Arizona and North Carolina, and even maybe there's a surprise in there like Georgia or something <clears throat> that, you know, Biden has won by three or four points. If it's something like that, then I could see maybe people like Mitch McConnell will tell Trump, you know, the game's over, the jig's up. But short of that, I don't see Trump conceding at all. In that, that scenario of him not conceding, the question will be, are there legitimate results and returns that, that have to be respected? And he's disrespecting and dishonoring this tradition as well as the raw votes as they've been counted. So there's the, the scenario where it really is a nail biter and is too close to call in many states for two, three weeks. And then there's the scenario where, where at a certain point it becomes apparent that he, that Joe Biden won the electoral college and he's not giving up. Um, of those multiple scenarios that you're describing, and since you're focused on the electors right now, um, which do you think would be the greatest obstacle to the successful transition of power uh, in, a, in a case where the, the, the numbers come in and even if it's not known instantly, within a week, it becomes clear that Joe Biden won the Electoral College. What, what scenario would be um, the most challenging for our country, do you think, so that we could have a peaceful transition of power? Well, here's, here's an example for you. So, so take Pennsylvania. Let's say Pennsylvania with 20 electoral votes is somehow close enough that Trump feels he can challenge it. And he goes around screaming about fraud and it's baseless and so on. But, you know, Pennsylvania has uh, a, a state legislature that is controlled by Republicans. Uh, the state legislature, and some Pennsylvanians have been on the record talking about this. 
the state legislature could challenge the slate of electors uh, whom the people of Pennsylvania voted for uh, earlier this year and uh, or will vote for on November 3rd, I guess. Um, uh, the state legislature could say, no, those electors aren't valid. We're putting forth this slate of electors, a pro-Trump slate of electors. And then that gets thrown to, you know, then the, there's a mystery about the Electoral College. The Electoral College meets in, in mid-December to certify the results. But if there's a dispute about which slate of electors gets to sit, they can't do it. And then nobody gets 270. Then it goes to the House of Representatives, the next House of Representatives. And, there, and there's this 1887 law that is very poorly written and that cannot, can be interpreted any number of ways. The bottom line is you could come down to Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats arguing for one slate of electors and saying, this is how it's going to be. And then Mike Pence, who presides over this meeting in his capacity as the president of the Senate, could say, no, I overrule you. I vote for this slate of electors. In, a, in an extreme case, in other words, Mike Pence could literally unilaterally decide that Donald Trump and he were reelected. Do you think that that scenario is only applicable if Pennsylvania is the deciding state? Uh, or let me put it differently, if its electoral votes will put someone over 270? It doesn't have to be Pennsylvania. The question is, if, if a state's electors are, are challenged uh, by Trump and they don't count, this is getting a little technical, but <laughs> I'll walk you through it um, <clears throat> real fast. Uh, it's, it raises the question of, of how you count who got a majority. So right now it's 538, as we all know, and 270 to win. If Pennsylvania's 20 don't count, do you move the denominator, as it's called, down to 518 so that a majority becomes 260? Or do you keep the denominator at 538 so that the majority remains 270, even though you've taken 20 electoral votes off the table and it makes it that much harder for somebody to get to 270? I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs and permutations of it, but I think you get the idea from there. And so this question of the denominator might actually be a thing come January. Right. Uh, but yeah. your, your point, Michael, was that it won't be a thing if it's an electoral college blowout right. or victory the size of 2008 or even 2012, right? I mean, for, for Obama's election. Yeah. And I mean, I think if, 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 it, if it's looking like Biden won, as Obama did, Florida and Ohio, in addition to the states that where Biden is comfortably ahead right now or seemingly comfortably ahead, then I don't think Trump has any cards to play. And then I think that, you know, it's going to still be ugly and potentially violent out there across the country. But I, I think at that point, even Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and some of the other big shots in the party will step forward and say, you know, it's, it, it's over. It's Meeting you in the New York Review of Books and the Beast, uh, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but you can confirm, Michael, which is uh, knowing the scenarios at play here and the temperament of, of the current president um, and, and his uh, desire to continue, as he says, rather than be reelected. Um, did the Democrats, uh, without question, make the right decision in nominating Joe Biden at the top of the ticket 
I think they did. Of the choices they had, yeah, I think they did because he's um, for two reasons. Uh, he makes a, a nice, affable contrast to Trump. People think he's a nice, decent man, and they think he's basically honest. You know, Trump couldn't make that Hunter Biden thing stick. Um, so, you know, he's a, he, he's a good alternative just in terms of you know how he presents himself and comports himself. Is there is there anything, Michael, that you know? Again, hindsight is twenty twenty, <laughs> pun intended, and we won't know the answer to this question. But looking at this days and a couple of weeks before the election, is there anything that you see in Biden that would resemble the mistake in the Republicans nominating Romney or Dole? It's something I've thought about in terms of, you know, some some of the the distinction, um, you know, the the way that Romney was not offensive in the way that, you know, Santorum or Gingrich would be. He was he was he adopted a lot of extremely conservative platform planks, but he was considered among the folks running, you know, the most decent in 2012. And and to think of Dole as, as sort of the honorable patriot. Uh, that um, it, to me, there is some striking resemblance to a couple of Republican fails, and and I just don't know if you see it that way in, in any in any shape or form. Yeah, I, I, I see your point, but you know, like Romney was their best candidate in 2012 by far. He just wasn't quite good enough. But I don't think anybody else uh, who was seeking that nomination would have done any better. I think they all probably would have done worse. Uh, Dole just kind of got it out of seniority and, you know, they were running against an, an incumbent who was pretty popular and they didn't think they had probably the greatest shot anyway. Uh, I'll say this for Biden, though. He's, he's run a much better campaign and been a much better candidate than a year ago I would have thought he was capable of being. Uh, I think he's been uh, uh, um, empathetic. He's been on point. Uh, I think the pandemic clearly awakened something in him and he saw the nature of the historical moment uh, he was thrust into. And, and and I think he's largely risen to it and he's given good speeches and he's got a good program. And, and I think they're, they're a smart campaign, like going to Gettysburg to give that speech the other day was really, really a good choice. You know, they do smart stuff, this campaign. So they are they are doing smart stuff. My only remaining thought is that this is this is base politics, but we're testing in 2020 whether it really is only base politics because McCain and you could argue Romney both failed because they weren't to the far enough to the right and they ignored the autopsy and went to Trump and it might have been a fluke and perfect storm that elected him, but he got it. He excited enough people in enough red places. So I, I suppose if, if Biden were to lose, it might not just be the polling that was wrong. It was that you need someone who's going to more fundamentally excite your base. Uh, I guess that's true. But, you know, like the Democrats have to um, the Democrats have to do both. I mean, the simple fact is there are more conservatives in this country than liberals uh, self-identified according to Gallup and Pew and all those kinds of places. So Republicans can run a base election more than Democrats can. Democrats need swing voters. 
Fair enough, Michael. Yeah. Michael, uh, you are a columnist for The Beast and editor of Democracy, a Journal of Ideas. I urge all of our listeners to check out your latest special edition on Trump versus democracy. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.